How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening with reverence and awe of your word, Lord. We come before you acknowledging that we need to sit under your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us soft hearts, Lord, moldable hearts, Lord. Hearts ready to receive from your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we consider this call of raising up godly leaders. Lord, that you would so pierce our hearts, that you would so change our hearts, Lord, as we're going to see you change Samuel's heart. Lord, would you be at work among us by your spirit this evening? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm grateful to be with you all here tonight, uh, to have the privilege of looking at God's Word with you all tonight. Uh, Pastor Dale asked me to preach um, this message. It was based on a message that I gave several weeks ago. Um, because as many of you know, there's a congregational meeting taking place on March 27th, where we'll be voting on whether to call Wayne Veenstra to serve as an associate pastor here at Harvest. So Dell's asked me to preach on this passage as we consider this decision, and particularly the call of raising up godly leaders for the church. 
Now, this passage we're looking at together, 1 Samuel 16, marks a major transition in the book of 1 Samuel and begins one of the most extraordinary sections in the whole of the Old Testament, the life of David. This is actually the first mention of David in the Old Testament. And although David's one of the characters, the main character in this story is actually Samuel. This is the time that Samuel anoints David as king. And we're going to be considering one main point together. We're going to be looking at how God transforms the hearts of his leaders in order to raise up new spiritual leaders. How God transforms the hearts of his leaders so that they will in turn raise up new leaders who likewise possess a heart for God. And we're going to be doing this in two stages. We're first going to look at Samuel's spiritual incapacity. And then we're going to be looking at Samuel's spiritual transformation. So if you want to follow along, there's an outline provided. So first, Samuel's spiritual incapacity. See, as our passage begins, the mighty Samuel is grieving. And he's grieving over God's rejection of Saul. And this has left him spiritually incapacitated. Verse 1 says that the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. See, Samuel is grieving because he's just told Saul that God has actually rejected him from being king over Israel. And he's grieving because this was a man who many wanted and expected God would make his king. This is a man who many expected would bring Israel into a fuller expression of God's purposes for them as a nation. And personally for Samuel, this is a man who Samuel has poured years of his life into. And this man has not only rejected God through a series of disastrous acts, But now he's actually been rejected by God and he's gone mad. See, Samuel's not grieving over merely a personal concern like so many of us would. Personal disappointment or a desire for a higher quality of life or receiving credit and applause that's due to us. No, Samuel has a godly concern. He's concerned for the nation of Israel And we get a sense of the the utter weight of Samuel's grief when we consider the fact that this is the mighty Samuel. This is the mightiest leader in Israel at this time. This is the one who for decades had led God's people with strength and boldness and fortitude. It's this Samuel, this mighty servant of the Lord who's grieving. I love how Rick Phillips puts it. He says, the grim situation seems to have sapped Samuel's spirit since the once bold servant of God was reduced to grief and fear. And brothers and sisters, as a church, many of us know Samuel's experience. Many of us know Samuel's situation and despair. What it's like to put our hope in, or maybe even to invest in, a leader who we anticipated that God would use mightily in his church only to be disappointed by moral failure or maybe even someone who's left the church entirely. And so we know what it's like to be spiritually, to feel Samuel's spiritual incapacity. 
and to feel the weight and the tremendous disappointment that he's experiencing. However, into Samuel's grief, God speaks hope. I have provided a king for myself. See, despite Saul's and Israel's failure, God has not given up on his people. He will provide a king to lead his people. And this is God's choice for a king. You notice that Israel wanted a king, as the text says, to be like the other nations. However, although that was Israel's choice, this is God's choice. The first was the people's initiative. This one is God's. So in hope, God calls Samuel out of his grief. However, immediately after speaking hope to Samuel, God gives Samuel a series of commands. He commands him of how to anoint the king. He says, go, call Jesse, the elders, and his sons to a sacrifice. And notice, even despite the danger, Samuel obeys. Verse 4 says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And we're tempted to think that because Samuel obeyed, that all of a sudden he's been spiritually restored. However, also notice that God commanded Samuel to wait. He commanded him to wait to see who God was going to show him. See, God doesn't tell him who to anoint. He tells him what to do, but he doesn't tell him how he'll know. And he could have. Why not? Why does God not tell Samuel who to anoint? Why does he just tell him how? See, God is testing Samuel to reveal to him that he's still spiritually destitute. See, and God's going to use this test to actually transform and change Samuel's heart. However, notice Samuel fails the test. Look at verse 6. It says, And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And there's several things that are notable about Samuel's mistake. I mean, most obviously, he makes the same mistake as the people of Israel when they chose Saul in 1 Samuel 10, 23. He chooses him because he's tall in stature and handsome in appearance. See, Israel chose Saul because he was tall and handsome. So when Samuel goes to choose a king, who does he choose? He chooses the one who's tall and handsome. He chooses the oldest. And what's so surprising about this is although this was the mistake that the people of Israel made, it should have been the first thing that was on Samuel's mind. And yet he, say, he still makes the same mistake. He has the same set of qualifications as the worldly people. And we know that physical appearance is actually a false measure of whether someone possesses the qualities of leadership. Of leadership. See, good looks and height are false indicators of whether someone will make a good leader. And this is really good news for short people. This is really good news for those of us in the room who are uh, vertically challenged, as it were. And Wayne, it means that Although your good looks and your uh, height won't count against you as we're making this decision, um, it won't be the primary reason, uh, the primary consideration as we're considering your call. However, there's another reason that Samuel's mistake is surprising. 
See, it's ironic here that although Samuel is a prophet, that the word for prophet actually means a seer. However, it's ironic because that's the very thing he lacks. See, his sight is based solely on what he could see with his physical sight rather than with spiritual sight. He lacks spiritual discernment. And this is not only surprising, but it's sad because we know that from an early age, Samuel actually had an unusual sensitivity to God's voice. This was the one who, even as a little boy in the temple, when he ministered at a time when there was, quote, no frequent vision, and even his mentor Eli's eyes had, quote, begun to grow dim, still, even then, it was Samuel who heard God's voice not once, but three times. However, despite his previous spiritual insight, Samuel cannot see. See, his divine rebuke is a rebuke of exactly what he, he should have been able to do. It's the very thing he lacked. So this is Samuel's spiritual incapacity. However, notice God isn't going to just leave Samuel in this state of spiritual destitute. God, as he always does, is going to come and transform Samuel's heart. And what's so amazing about this text, brothers and sisters, is that this text actually shows us how God transforms Samuel's heart. And I think he does this in two ways. First, God calls Samuel to change his priorities. Look at verse 7. This is a central verse of the passage. It says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is the central verse of this passage, and it's actually one of the most memorable verses in all of Scripture. It talks about the heart, the inward moral spiritual life, the inward spiritual characteristics. You know, years ago I was living with, um, in the basement of a wealthy family's home that lived in a, in a very nice neighborhood. One of these neighborhoods that was lined with, the roads were lined with mature trees and just absolutely beautiful and I remember this one tree in particular, it was just absolutely massive and breathtaking to look at. It had big, beautiful branches that, that went out over the road and shielded the, the road during the summertime. And during the fall, just had beautiful yellows and oranges and reds. It was just a beautiful, breathtaking tree. However, one summer, summer evening, uh, a storm swept through our neighborhood, a microburst with winds of 70 or 80 miles an hour and knocked down seven or eight trees in our neighborhood. And sadly, this beautiful tree was one of the, was one of the trees that was actually knocked down. And it actually had fallen over the road, so all of the neighbors came out um, to help remove it with chainsaws and saws. And we got to work on it, and as we started removing the tree, we noticed why it fell. It was completely hollow on the inside. See, termites had actually eaten up through the trunk of the tree, and that was the reason that the tree fell. That's what God means when he says that his concern is to not look on the outside, but look on the inside. That's what he means when he says his concern is inward rather than outward. See, just as the most important test for the strength of the tree was not how beautiful it looked on the outside or how strong it looked on the outside, but whether it had a whole and healthy trunk. 
So the most important qualification for whether someone will lead not only Israel but Christ's church is not whether they have outward appearances that are attractive, but whether or not they possess a heart for God. And we know that this isn't just the central message of this passage, but this is actually one of the central messages in all of Scripture. God's concern is for the heart. For God, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And it's on this principle that Samuel is tested. See, Jesse appears to be attuned to the situation. Even though no announcement has been made that Samuel is in the process of discerning who to anoint his king, it seems that Jesse actually capitalizes on the situation. See, Jesse takes over the calling. Notice in verses 5 and 6, Samuel's the one who's in the process of calling Jesse's sons. However, in verse 8, Jesse's the one who takes over the calling. And Jesse has the same qualifications as the people of Israel. He calls them in order from the oldest and strongest all the way down to the youngest. See, just like the people of Israel, Jesse believes that the qualifications for leadership are outward. And yet, none of them are chosen. And now Samuel is giving a given a choice. Is he going to question Jesse or is he going to question God? Because remember, God had said in verse 1, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. So either Samuel must take God at his word, that although he's seen all of the sons, there still must be a king, or he must doubt God's promise and conclude that since he's seen all of the sons, he, that God must obviously have made a mistake. And, you know, Samuel passes this test. He checks first for human error. If you look at verse 11, look at that. It says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he not only passes the test, but it seems that Samuel's priorities have changed. It says in verse 11 again, That he, that is Jesse, said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. See, Samuel had specifically asked Jesse to invite all of his sons. And yet, yet David wasn't invited. And this was no mere oversight on Jesse's part. You can almost hear the reluctance in Jesse's voice. See, Jesse deliberately did not invite his youngest son because he believed that his youngest son wasn't important. See, the word here that Jesse uses for youngest in verse 11 can actually be translated smallest or insignificant. And he's not only physically insignificant, physically small, he's doing an insignificant job. He's keeping sheep. However, notice Samuel's priorities have changed. Notice Samuel's reaction. Rather than being discouraged by David's insignificance, quite the contrary, he's actually encouraged. See, far from being discouraged by the fact that David is the youngest and the smallest and in, in Jesse's eyes, the most insignificant member of his family, the one who wasn't even invited to the sacrifice, Samuel's actually encouraged. Notice he says, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. See, although Jesse was reluctant, Samuel is confident that this anonymous, unnamed, Notice, David hasn't even been named in this passage yet. That this anonymous, unnamed, seemingly 
insignificant son of Jesse could potentially be the one who he's going to anoint as king. Samuel's priorities have changed. See, Samuel has learned one of the chief principles in Scripture, that God uses seemingly insignificant people in the most significant ways. He's learned what Dale Ralph Davis calls that this is the stuff songs are made of. And if we had time, we could trace how throughout all the history of redemption, God used time and time again insignificant people, both men and women, who sinned in grievous ways, in the most significant ways in the Bible. However, we know that all of these people and all of these events ultimately point forward to one person and to one event, the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as when the curtain was pulled back and David was revealed to be Israel's great king, he was the king who no one anticipated. So when the curtain of history is pulled back and Israel's true great king is revealed, he was someone who none of us anticipated. He was insignificant in appearance. As Isaiah 53 tells us, he had no former majesty that we should look on him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was insignificant in status. We know from his birth narrative that he was born into an insignificant family. He was the son of a young girl and a carpenter. He was from an insignificant place to the extent that throughout his ministry, people were completely perplexed and wondered, how in the world can it be that this great prophet was from Nazareth? And yet, he also died a seemingly insignificant death. As 1 Corinthians tells us, the cross is foolishness to those who are being saved. Or excuse me, foolishness to those that are perishing. And that's our experience today. When we talk to many today, we see that the, the salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is seen as utter foolishness. And although the life and death of Jesus is seen as foolishness to the world, we know, as the text goes on to say, that it is the power of God unto salvation for those who are being saved. See, the, the cross is the apex of God's wisdom. It's the event above all events that displays to the world that God could use death, even the death of his one and only beloved son, to bring salvation to the world. See, and far from being an insignificant figure, Jesus was the most significant figure in all of history. He was the one to whom, whom God told David in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingdom would be established forever. See, Samuel's priorities have changed. That's the first thing God does. However, Samuel call, excuse me, God calls Samuel not to look, but to listen. See, how did God change Samuel's priorities? How did Samuel go from, in verse 6, being convinced that Eliab was the Lord's anointed because he was tall and handsome, to verse 11, being enthusiastic about the fact that Jesse's youngest and most insignificant son could potentially be the one who he was going to anoint. How did that happen? How did God change Samuel's heart? Samuel listened to God's word 
for spiritual insight rather than looking on the outward appearance of man. Remember God's rebuke to Samuel? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. See, God called Samuel to recognize his lack of spiritual sight and instead to listen to his word. Now you ask, where where is that in this text? If you look at verse 8 and 9, you'll notice the repetition of the phrase, and he said. Now there's some debate in this passage about whether the he here is actually referring to Samuel or to God. But I think the ambiguity is actually quite helpful. I think the ambiguity is, um, is actually that it's both. See, as each son is being brought forward, God is speaking to Samuel. Samuel is listening to God. And then Samuel is telling what he heard to Jesse. See, it's both. It's Samuel's listening to God that transforms his priorities. And we know this because when David is anointed in verse 12, it says that when they brought him in, the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. See, Samuel anointed David for one reason and one reason alone. And the Lord said. See, Samuel's listening to God, and it's his listening to God that's transformed his priorities. See, God used his word, as he so often does, to change Samuel's priorities. It's his listening rather than his looking. And because he did that, his priorities have changed. Now, we're going to close this evening by making six applications from this text um, as we think about the call to raise up godly leaders. See, All of us are involved in this ministry in one way or another. See, it's not just those who are in senior ministry leadership positions who are the ones who are called to raise up godly leaders. This text and these applications are actually for everyone. So let's look at these six together. First, we must resist the temptation to follow a culture that values merely outward attributes of its leaders. I don't think it's a secret that we live in a culture that highly values the external. I don't think it's a stretch to say that we live, that the outward appearance is really the idol of the day. In some ways, you might say say that we live in a world in which physical appearance is all that matters. And we know this because our culture has even a bare minimum standard. Our culture seems content with a bare minimum standard. Of, of spiritual qualifications, as evidenced by the fact that so many leaders have engaged in grossly ungodly acts. And it's not only tolerated, but it's quickly forgotten. See, judging by merely outward standards is how the world makes decisions. It's a worldly approach. And yet, the church at times seems to adopt, have adopted a similar set of qualifications. Although we may not be swayed by physical appearance, it seems that at times other things can carry the day with leadership in the church. It could be a man's intellect, how smart he is, where he went to school or where he did his PhD. It could be his eloquence, his speaking ability. It could be um, his charisma, how well, how much people are attracted to him or whether he's someone that people would follow. 
However, the problem with each of these things is that none of them are actually true indicators of whether a man will faithfully lead Christ's church. Because we know that from God's words that a person, person's actions flow not from their outward characteristics, but from their inward spiritual character. See, we can't under, and underestimate the temptation of subtly adopting these rival criteria. Remember, it was a real pressure that Samuel faced. He had to say no, not once, but seven times. And many of us experientially know this temptation and what it's like to feel this pressure, what it's like to meet people who are prospective leaders, who are smart and eloquent and good-looking, and to feel that pressure from others to appoint them into leadership positions in the church. However, it's like a Trojan horse. Although at the beginning it seems like it could be a great blessing to the church, we know that it can ultimately result in the church's ruin. These qualities are powerful. See, they can skew our judgment and tempt us to value the qualities that the world values. And we must be on guard against the self-deception of this temptation. Notice that Samuel was not aware, despite the fact that it should have been the first thing on his mind, that he was making the mistake. And we too, you know, we too can be self-deceived. And it's not until, just like with Samuel, the Spirit of God comes and opens our eyes and gives us eyes to see and, and ears to hear and hearts that understand and, and that we're able to see our error. And we should pray earnestly that God would protect us from this error in, in appointing men for leadership. So that's first. Secondly, we must rely on God's word as the only resource for determining qualities for spiritual leadership. You see, it's not simply enough that we reject the world's priorities. We must also take on the criteria that's firmly established in God's word. See, we must strictly adhere to what's listed in the scriptures. Remember, why did Samuel anoint David? Because the Lord said God's word was his standard. And we know that the qualifications for elders and deacons is clearly laid out in 1 Samuel 3 and Titus 1. And as we go through that list, we notice that all of those qualities are actually spiritual characteristics. It's not as though God is opposed to outward appearances. I mean, we know that verse 12 tells us that David was handsome. However, that's not the reason that he was chosen to be king. The reason that he was chosen is because he was a man after God's own heart. And because of this cultural temptation, we must be purposeful. We must be intentional in allowing God's word to shape our perspective rather than the culture. See, it's like being in an ocean. If we don't swim actively against the current of our culture towards spiritual principles, we will find ourselves gradually drifting in the other direction. And, it, and if we do not put scripture as our principles, something will quickly take its place. So we must be purposeful. Thirdly, we must require candidates for spiritual leadership to submit themselves to a true discernment process when considering a call to ministry leadership. You know, 2 Timothy 2.2 2 tells us, 
tells, Paul tells Timothy to commit these things to faithful men who will then be, be able to in turn communicate them to others. However, knowing who you can entrust something to, entrust these things to, takes time. We can't make these decisions hastily. You'll notice that in this passage, God actually slows Samuel down. That he not only has to say no once, he has to do it seven different times. See, God slows him down to keep him from making his decision hastily. We must be intimately acquainted with those who are in the process of being raised up for leadership. And this must be a true process. I remember a few years ago before going to seminary, um, I had the great privilege of being at a church that required all of its candidates for ministry to submit themselves to a discernment committee. And this discernment committee was made up of folks who knew me really well and uh, some folks who didn't know me at all, who were quite objective. And the great blessing of this discernment committee is that it wasn't just focused on um, my own internal sense of call or, or sense of giftedness, but it was focused primarily on spiritual characteristics. It was, it was focused primarily on character. And I'm grateful to, to know, as far as I can see, that that has been Wayne's experience here at Harvest. That spiritual characteristics have actually been of the utmost importance as we've been considering this call to ministry leadership. And the reason this should be um, a process is because it's such a significant decision. You know, Samuel was the one who was anointing and choosing Israel's next king. However, how much greater of a privilege lies with us as we consider the call of raising up leaders for the local church? Fourthly, we must relentlessly pursue growth and holiness even more than developing ministerial gifts. I just love how Rick Phillips puts it. He says, if we would desire to be useful to the Lord, we should devote ourselves to preparing our character and tending to our own spiritual growth. And this should really pursue us towards self-examination. We should ask ourselves, am I merely content with giftedness or with godliness? Am I content or do I care more about developing my gifts for ministry or developing godly character? And these are questions that shouldn't just be put on those who are considering a call to pastoral ministry, but it should be a consideration when looking at all of the different ministry positions in the local church, whether that be small group leaders or Sunday school teachers or, or really anything where there's some level of oversight. We must be those who are seeking to grow in godliness. And this must be spirit-empowered. Notice the first mention of David's name in verse 13 is actually in conjunction with his empowerment of the Spirit. See, from now on, David's entire life would be marked by the fact that he had a special relationship with God's Spirit. It's the Spirit, the Spirit was the one who empowered David in his giftings. So the success that we admire in David throughout the rest of his ministry is not a result of his own giftings. It was the result of the empowerment of the Spirit. And our ministries must flow from this as well. It must be from the empowerment of the Spirit. And it must be continual. 
Notice that the phrase was, from that day forward. We too must continue in it. We must be able to say with David in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. However, fifthly and quickly, we must rejoice in the good news that God chooses and uses feeble people to lead his church. We've already talked about how by man's standards, we're left shocked that David was the one chosen as king. That in terms of appearance and status, David was the least likely person we would have anticipated. However, David was also not to be anticipated because of his background. See, anybody who had been familiar with David's history would have known from Ruth 4, 18-22, that David was actually the grandson of Ruth, a Moabite. And he was the great-grandson of a Gentile prostitute. He was hardly of the pedigree that would be hoped for in a king. However, as we talked about earlier, this was God's way. Although, on the one hand, it seems that the selection of David was foolishness by man's standards... We know that actually it's perfectly in step with who God would choose as a king. See, God chooses and uses feeble people to lead his church. Time and time again, the people that God uses are those who we would least expect. And I think this is good news and should be a deep encouragement to those of you and to those of us who have broken paths. I know many of us did not grow up in a godly home and have broken paths. Or maybe if you did grow up in a godly home, um, you strayed at times. You've had whole seasons of straying. However, the gospel is that God does, he can and does, bind up the broken hearted. And this is, this is also a message specifically to those who feel like they're on the outside looking in. I expect there are a number of folks to whom Christianity is quite new. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're someone who didn't grow up in a Christian home, or you feel that God has excluded you because of some past sin or a big mistake that you've made. And for years now, you've held back from making a commitment to Christ because of this perception. And now you've heard the gospel recently, or maybe even for the first time tonight, and you're faced with the decision whether or not to follow Christ. And I would encourage you to see that God is calling you to change your perspective. He's calling you to see that in his eyes, no one is good enough. No one is significant enough. No one has a godly enough heritage to receive his favor. I love how the book of Romans puts it so clearly. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. However, Romans also goes on to say the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners. That God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel that the God of the universe, the most significant being in all of history, became the insignificant one, and died a seemingly insignificant death. I would encourage you, 
If this is the first time you've heard this message, or if you've been thinking about this for a number of weeks or months or years, to put your trust in that Jesus, to not wait any longer. And if you make that decision to talk to somebody tonight, maybe it's the person who you came with or one of the pastors here, just encourage you to make that decision. See, because many of us have seen that our very weakness, the background or the sin issue that we felt disqualified us, is actually the thing that God used and transformed and made the substance of our ministry. See, our sin in our background doesn't disqualify us. On the contrary, for many of us, it's become the thing that God used most in our service of church, of Christ and His church for His glory. See, God changes and renews us so that even our mistakes are useful in His kingdom. And I know many of you know experientially what I'm talking about. Those of us who come from broken homes naturally find ourselves gravitating towards those from broken homes. Many of us who have come through addiction find ourselves naturally gravitating, those who, gravitating towards those who struggle with addiction. Those of us who have suffered and struggled with mental illness gradually gravitating towards those who are in the midst of the despair of struggling with anxiety and depression. That's God's way. And therefore, we rejoice in the good news that God chooses and uses feeble people for His church. And finally, we must remember that it's ultimately God who's at work in raising up leaders for His church. See, this is God's work. It was ultimately God was the one who chose David, not Samuel. We started by saying that this this story was mostly about Samuel, but really... More than Samuel, this this story is about God. And there's a promise here. There's a promise embedded in this passage. God will provide leaders for his church. Like Samuel, we can often despair of seeing leaders fall. However, we know that God will always provide leaders for his church because he has provided our true and great leader, our true and great king, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, may these words, Lord, may they fall on our hearts. And Lord, would you make us a congregation? Would you make us a people who desire to raise up godly leaders? And Lord, would you bless that desire, Lord? Would you raise up people from within our congregation or bring people to our congregation? And Lord, along the way, as we continue in this discernment process, Lord, may these principles be the chief focus as we consider this decision. Lord, we pray that you would bless the rest of this Lord's Day and bless our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.